Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into the Corbett Report podcast on this 17th day of January 2014. And this is not an edition of the regular podcast, nor is it a podcastumentary, nor is it an edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. No, this is an edition of Questions for Corbett, that podcast series where, as you might expect from a title like that, I, Corbett, answer your questions. And on a deprogramming note for those who are waiting on the edge of their seat in anticipation of the uh, eagerly anticipated Federal Reserve podcastumentary that I promised at the end of last year. As I have noted in a few of my other uh, works lately, uh, that podcastumentary has really f- blossomed into a fully-fledged feature-length documentary. I've already put in hundreds of hours into the writing and researching of it, and will likely have to put in hundreds more into the editing and the creation of the final documentary. So I can't say exactly when that's going to drop. It will be sometime in the next few weeks, but again, I can't say when it will be, but uh, uh, please look forward to it. I really do think that this is going to be an exceptionally valuable resource for talking to people about the Federal Reserve. And uh, while we're waiting on that, I have this, of course, Questions for Corbett series, um, the Film Literature in the New World Order series, which will be uh, coming out next Monday with the next edition. And for those of you playing along at home, you should watch and or re-watch Oliver Stone's 1987 film Wall Street and the 2010 follow-up Money Never Sleeps in preparation for that edition of the Film Literature New World Order series. And who knows, there might be a regular podcast or two uh, that might drop along the way. But in the meantime, again, we are doing questions for Corbett, and once again, I am answering your questions that come in either through the contact form on CorbettReport.com or questions that are tweeted to my Twitter account, at CorbettReport, using the hashtag QFC to let me know that you have a question. And also uh, YouTube video responses, again, using the hashtag QFC so I can more easily find them. And really any other way that you want to try to get this information in, uh, these questions in for me, SoundCloud, audio recordings, or however you do, homing pigeon, whatever it is, I will be happy to consider all questions that come in. But on that note, of course, I get hundreds of questions for each edition of this series and and thousands of emails every month. So I obviously can't respond to all of them. I can't answer all your questions. If you want your question answered, uh, the best way to get get that done is to keep your questions relatively short and sweet, make them as much to the point as possible, and also make them actual questions rather than just giving your opinion or your take on something and saying, what, what do you think? That's not really much of a question that I have to work with. So on that note, let's uh, let's roll up our sleeves and get into it. And once again, I will stipulate that once again, with each episode of Qu- Questions for Corbett, I'm always looking for at least one person to, to write in with something positive that they have actually done or implemented in their lives based on the information they've gleaned from the Corbett Report so that they can help share with others how to change their lives for the better. And so we'll be highlighting something like that in each episode of this Questions for Corbett series. And on that note, we have something on those lines towards the very end of this episode. But first, let's get into the questions. And we'll start by opening up the mailbag and going to an email from Judah, who writes, After watching the Gladio B series, in which Sabelle gives concrete examples of the use of religion as a tool to divide and conquer, I was reminded of an Al Jazeera article I had read a while back about the myth of the Sunni-Shia religious divide. In it, the author argues that, while there is a real and historical difference in Sunni-Shia belief structures, Such differences have not historically been the cause of violent tensions between the two peoples. Rather, violent disagreements are only a recent development that have been incited by the West and espoused by some regional state actors for their own geopolitical aims. What's your take? Okay, thank you very much for that, Judah. Um, And for people who want, who are interested, Judah is referencing an Al Jazeera article called The Myth of the 1400-Year Sunni-Shia War by Murtaza Hussein. And just reading from that article, he writes, quote, quote, analyses of the roots of sectarian conflict in the Middle East tend to look at the historical schism between Sunnis and Shias as the original driving factor behind present-day tensions. In this reading of events, the 680 AD Battle of Karbala, in which the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, who are particularly revered by Shia Muslims, were killed, was merely the first battle in a long and continuous sectarian conflict, which today is being played out in Syria, Lebanon, and other countries throughout the Middle East. As described by the Saudi writer Abdullah Hamidadin, this explanation of contemporary events is as absurd as explaining modern tensions between Turkey and the EU as being rooted in the ancient conflict between King Charles and the Empress of Byzantium. 
positing that present-day political rivalries can be explained by examining 9th century conflicts between European powers is transparent nonsense. However, the same logic is readily applied to conflicts within the Muslim world. End quote. Again, a very interesting and informative article with a lot of history in there, so I'll, I'll suggest that you go and follow the show notes for this episode of the uh, Questions for Corbett series to take a look at that. But, uh, but yes, broadly speaking, I do agree. I think that trying to simplify these real, really dynamic geopolitical situations that are developing in the Middle East and that we've seen playing out for at least the last century, obviously more than that, but certainly throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, to, to reduce all of that to a Sunni Shia religious divide is obvious oversimplification, and it's not only wrong, I think it's dangerously wrong to make it that simplistic, because it obfuscates the real geopolitical machinations that are taking place in the region for very specific purposes, not only by outside foreign manipulation and intervention, although that is certainly a key factor in all of this, but also by the regional powers themselves in the region who are playing their own peoples in various ways to get their own geopolitical aims and goals. So I agree with that analysis. I think it is too simplistic. And on that note, people who are interested in exploring this in more detail, I'll point them to a very recent uh, interview by uh, MiddleEast.WeMagazine.net with uh, Charmine Narwani, a former guest on The Corbett Report. And she talks about there is no middle in the Middle East today, basically talking about how it's not Sunni versus Shia so much as sectarian versus non-sectarian. And this is, of course, all taking place in a specific geopolitical context that's really about, for example, driving the wedge between the Iranians and the Arabs as a way of playing one regional power off against another in a geopolitical strategy of tension that's really ultimately, I mean, the end goal of all of this is really more about forming those power blocks that are as I constantly keep saying these days, are going to form the the predominant Cold War myth of the next half century, which is the, the China-Russia-Iranian-allied power block versus the, the NATO-Israeli uh, allies power block, which are which is taking shape now. And we see the, uh, the lines forming al- along these. And through that lens, we can see the what's happening in uh, in Iran, in Lebanon, in in Syria, in Saudi Arabia, in these places, not only in in their own context, but in a much broader geopolitical context that literally spans the globe, from what's happening in South Sudan to what's happening in Ukraine, uh, just all over the globe, we see things that are that seem very disconnected, and and certainly there are actual people involved in these who really are authentic people who really believe that they're they're overthrowing this or or protesting against that for whatever reasons. But really, ultimately, this is part of a larger manipulation that's taking place in a geopolitical context. So. Long answer short, or short answer long, ultimately I agree. I think the Sunni-Shia divide is overplayed as some sort of explanatory device. I think it only applies to those um, people who are being manipulated in, in this. And there are certainly Sunnis and Shias who really do hate each other. There are people within those groups who hate each other. There are people within those groups who don't hate each other. And there's Sunni-Shia intermarriages and the like that are all throughout the region. And even in these places where these big rivalries happen in, in Lebanon and places like this, Sunni-Shia intermarriage is not uh, uncommon at all. So, so that's another way of uh, showing the lie of this. So I think it's important to keep that bigger geopolitical picture in context. And on that very note, let's turn to the next question from Aladdin, who writes, I would like to know if the April 6th movement in Egypt is funded by foreign agents or intelligence. Is it a tool for destabilization in Egypt? And what is its agenda? Okay, again, uh, thank you for the question, Aladdin. And uh, long story short, yeah, it absolutely is, I think, uh, funded by outside interests and for specific geopolitical purposes. And the I think one of the most succinct and concise places that we can get that is from the uh, the Land Destroyer blog, where we had a article from February of 2011 talking about the CIA coup college, uh, talking about Canvas, Otpor, and the April 6th movement. And in this article, Tony Cardellucci connects the these uh, seemingly disparate groups, although they're not really so uh, difficult to put together. I mean, the Otpor fist symbol is the exact symbol of the April 6th movement in Egypt. So, I, I mean, it's not like a, a, a close resemblance. It is the exact symbol. And when you start to look at this, they they all have connections through things like uh, Canvas um, in New York City. And, and all of this goes back to funding from outside um, uh, actors 
including uh, Freedom House, the Albert Einstein Institute, the International Republican Institute, etc. Again, all documented there in that Cartolucci article and others that he's written, so I'll direct people to that. And the question of what is the greater what is the greater goal, what is the greater agenda here, again, I do see this as part of the larger destabilization of that entire arc of crisis in North Africa, sweeping into the Middle East, uh, along those lines that, again, are shaping towards the, the, the formation of the various power blocks for the, the, the next era of the next Cold War that they want us to believe in. Um, that, again, I think is shaping up along the lines of China, Russia, Iran, those allied nations versus NATO, Israel, blah, blah, blah. I think that's that's the the lines of the uh, the, the conflict that they want us to to basically uh, to, to put our heads around. And I think that what's happening in Egypt is just one small part of that larger agenda. And that's why um, the U.S. State Department and others are actively involved in what's going on there. And that's not to say that it isn't a fluid situation that could take all sorts of different twists and turns. And I again, I don't think these people control everything. So um, there's revolution and counter-revolution and counter-counter-revolution. And I've lost track of how many um, uh, go, goes around they are in Egypt by now. But I think that uh, my analysis of the, the situation way back in, uh, I can't even remember which episode of the podcast, but but uh, a couple of years ago now, where we looked at what revolution really means, and that if you don't actually get rid of the underlying power structure, then it doesn't matter if you throw out the puppets here or there. It's still going to be the same thing in different, uh, wearing different shoes, basically. So a lot to say on that front, but we'll leave it there for now. Again, yes, April 6th movement is foreign backed and supported and funded and and there's uh, all sorts of outside manipulation going on in Egypt and and Syria and Lebanon and all throughout that region for a greater geopolitical purpose. And that reminds me of, uh, well, if we're talking about the new Cold War of the 21st century, we should probably talk about the manipulated, staged, and phony Cold War of the 20th century, um, which, of course, was brought to you by the very same banksters, the international banksters that uh, reside in New York and uh, London and, and based out of Germany and other places as well. And, um, and uh, on that very note, we had another uh, question in from Costa, who writes... Do you think it could be true that New York banker Jacob Schiff helped finance the Bolshevik Revolution in 1918 and supposedly he gave Leon Trotsky, also known as Mr. Bronstein, $20 million in gold for that matter, a substantial amount of money for those times? If that would be the case, what possible reason would one of the world's most affluent capitalists of his time have to support the institution of communism in Russia? Excellent question, Costa. Thank you for bringing it in. Although I should say that I don't think that anyone out there should care what I think or what I believe uh, to be the case. Uh, it's not a question of what I think to be true. It is a question of what is demonstrably true or false or what we can show to be true or false. So that should be the way that we think of these questions rather than do you think it is true. Um, so again, it's not whether a question of whether I think it is true that Jacob Schiff helped finance the, the revolution. It's a question of what we can actually show from the documentary record. And on that note, I will, of course, once again, as I have many times in the past, exhort people to go back to the work of Anthony Sutton on the uh, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. And of course, he has a book along uh, with that title and that goes into a lot of detail about the financing of the Bolshevik Revolution, specifically on the note of Schiff. In fact, he does talk about Schiff, but in a way that uh, does not support the theory that Schiff was the one financing um, Trotsky or anyone else. In fact, uh, in this uh, in appendix three of uh, of this book, he goes on to s state specifically that he does not believe that uh, that Schiff was even supportive of the Bolshevik Revolution, and that again we find that from the documentary record from State Department cables that he was both involved in and mentioned in, and uh, again that can be found in appendix three of Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. So no, I don't, I don't think that the, <laughs> again, what do I think? Uh, no, the documentary record does not support the Jacob Schiff giving twenty million dollars to Trotsky, etc., um, etc. Et but on the note of was this Bolshevik revolution funded, supported, and aided by outside interests, including New York Wall Street financiers and uh, Germans and British? Uh, absolutely, yes. And in fact, again, you can take that from the book, which I will once again exhort people to read, and it is available completely for free online, although it is, of course, also available for purchase. But uh, but absolutely, I think that, uh, that people should not only read that, but also look at the interviews that Anthony Sutton gave about this very subject.
Getting back to the Bolshevik Revolution, one of the ironies of it is that both Lenin and Trotsky were in exile, one in Germany, one in the United States. Tell us about how, who helped them get where they were going to make sure that revolution was pulled off. Well, let me summarize about four chapters into four minutes. Uh, Trotsky was in New York. Um, he had no income. I, I summed his income for the uh, year he was in New York. It was about $600. Yet he lived in an apartment. He had a chauffeured limousine. He had a refrigerator, which is very rare in those days. He left uh, New York and went to Canada on his way to the revolution. He had $10,000 in gold on him. He didn't earn more than $600 in New York. He was financed out of New York. There's no question about that. Um, the British took him off the ship in Halifax, uh, Canada. I got the Canadian archives. Uh, they knew who he was. They knew who Trotsky was. They knew he was going to start a revolution in Russia. Instructions from London came to put Trotsky back on the boat with his party and allow them to go forward. So there is no question that Woodrow Wilson, who issued the passport for Trotsky, and the New York financiers who financed Trotsky, and the British Foreign Office, allowed Trotsky to perform his part in the revolution. Now over in Switzerland you get Lenin who was in exile. He went through Germany in the famous sealed train by permission and by, with the encouragement of the German general staff. And yet Germany and Britain were supposed to be fighting each other. And you get them both moving these two key revolutionaries into place inside Russia. And then of course the rest is history. They created the revolution with no more than about 10,000 revolutionaries. They needed assistance from the West, and they got assistance from Germany, from Britain, and from the United States to continue and consolidate the revolution. Just tell us all over again why. Why? Just tell you won't find again. this in the textbooks. Why is to bring about, I suspect, a plan to control world society in which you and I won't find the freedoms to believe and think and do as we believe. Did these uh, power brokers actually envision at that time a one-world government that would be socialist? Yes. The second statement I made was that they did not want the Soviet Union to develop into another free enterprise society and that this would offset, offset it. Aiding revolution would offset this event. That was made as a statement in 1919. You have various books, one by Gillette, the razor blade Gillette, uh, the, uh, called The City, I think it was, which laid out this corporate socialism for the world to see as early as, what, 1905, 1910. So around the turn of the century, you begin to see actually written statements by these internationalist businessmen of the kind of socialist empire they wanted to bring about. It's there, but these books, of course, are not included in your courses in political science and history at the regular universities. In the interest of time, we're going to cut that interview short there, but I really do hope you'll follow the link to watch the rest of that video, and I hope you'll follow the link to read Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution in its entirety, as Anthony Sutton exhaustively documents from the documentary record itself how the international financiers in Wall Street, in London, in Germany, and elsewhere besides helped to not only foster and fund and bring about the Bolshevik Revolution, but then also propagandized for it after it had taken place. Um, and, and the question again comes back to why? Why did they do this? Why would the bankers be interested in installing a, 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 a socialist, a communist government, a Bolshevik gov government in, in Russia? Well, obviously, as Antony Sutton says, absolutely in stark terms right there, it is the implementation of a one-world corporate socialist system. And unfortunately, here we are a century later and a century further along in the progression of the implementation of that agenda. And it continues to steamroll ahead. So so it's exceptionally important that we understand that these conflicts are being engineered from behind the scenes and for specific purposes to hurt us in a certain direction. And that's no less true of the developing Cold War of the 21st century than it was for the phony and stage-managed Cold War of the 20th century. Obviously, a lot more to say there, but let's move on again in the interest of time to the next question. We have an email in from Holly who writes, My boyfriend is a huge fan. Any chance you could give him a shout-out in one of your podcasts for me? He would think it was so cool. He watches every single one. 
Well, thank you very much for that, Holly. It's very flattering, but I can't do that for your boyfriend, because if I did, then I'd have to do that for everyone's boyfriend. But, well, let me say this to you and to your boyfriend and to everyone else out there who is a regular listener or supporter of The Corbett Report, either monetarily or through just simply spreading the information around and sharing it with friends. I truly do want to give a shout out to all of you and thank you very much for for supporting The Corbett Report, because it literally wouldn't be possible without all of you guys out there. Okay, next question uh, comes from Flagler. Is neoliberalism the same as libertarianism? What makes it so bad? It seems like the only alternative is something of a socialist or interventionist nature, and it seems like you would be against that. End quote. Excellent. Excellent question. Thank you very much for this, Flagler. I, I really mean that, because this is an exceptionally important question to put out there on the table and to draw a very distinct line between the neolibertarian, uh, sorry, the neoliberal and the libertarians. Um, what What is the difference anyway? I mean, doesn't it sound like a free market paradise, neoliberalism? What is neoliberalism? It's coming in and selling off the private public infrastructure to private hands, so it's privatization of, uh, of public uh, public infrastructure. Well, that sounds good. That's what free marketeers want. And and lifting of sanctions, the government intervention in the marketplace, trade trade barriers, tariffs, that kind of thing, lifting of all of those. Well, again, that's free market principles at work. So this is all for the good. What's, what's wrong with neoliberalism then? But it is exceptionally important to understand that neoliberalism is not just not, not anarchistic or libertarian or free market in nature. It's it's almost even worse than just the regular machinations of the corporate socialist uh, um, uh, governments that that Anthony Sutton was warning about. And, and we have to understand that the entire system is set up to extract as much wealth as possible from the masses through this imaginary obligation to pay taxes to this imaginary entity called government, which is really just a siphon. It takes all of that, all of that wealth that it's extracting out from the lifeblood of the, the average person and injecting it into to the corporations, which again are government constructs that are populated by the cronies and the people who have paid off, in many cases, the governments to in order to make this whole system function. So people have this imaginary obligation to an imaginary entity called the government. They pay their taxes, which then goes off into the corporate, uh, the corporate uh, crony hands and the financiers and the like, who are again creating the money out of nothing. And um, throughout this whole system, all of this wealth and power and everything starts to get accrued in smaller and smaller cliques and cabals and the ruling bloodlines and the, and the small family groups that, that control the vast majority of the wealth on the planet. And then in that state, once that uh, incredible concentration has already taken place, for then the what little has actually uh, does actually serve the public the public infrastructure that's been paid for again by the the wealth that's been extracted at gunpoint from the average uh, laborer um, for that then to be sold at pennies on the dollar to that same corporate clique and and cronies that have been extracting all of this wealth for for decades and centuries to call that free market is just it's just absurd. It's just a disgusting perversion of the idea of what free markets um, are about and what, what, what people really mean when they're advocating for free markets. But that does bring up the very important question and the very important uh, idea. Well, then, how do we transition? What is the transition, the method for transition from the current structure, which has been this centuries-long process of accumulation of wealth in a smaller and smaller cabal's group of hands, uh, how do we transition from that into, well, okay, restrictions are all off and everyone, you know, go along your merry way. Obviously, that's that cannot be the way that we do it because that will consign m many, many millions who have been unfortunately placed into this system and, and, and made dependent on it will consign them to death and will ensure that the people who are already at the top of this power pyramid will continue to hold their disproportionate power over the masses. So this is an exceptionally important question and I think probably the most important question. I, I don't think that there's any question that voluntarism is the ethical construct that we have to use as the basis for our ethical system, but the question is how do we transition off of a system that has been gamed for centuries without 
having that that fundamental inequality that that system itself has created perpetuate into the into the next stage of humanity's development and that is a very important question that i won't bother to gloss over right now in a glib uh, short answer in this time constrained uh, format i think that's something that we all have to be working towards and and make it very clear and and put it all out on the table so once again i do thank you for for asking that question flagler i think that does go to a heart one of the hearts of the problems <laughs> if i can use that phrase Okay, let's move on to DJ Mongo, who um, is someone who's on Twitter. He's at J-, J. Bryce. I've interacted with him on Twitter, so I will suggest that people out there um, do the same and and follow him. And um, and he puts in a YouTube video question under the QFC hashtag, so that was how I was able to find it. Now, this video is over seven minutes long, so I'm, in the, again, in the interest of time, not going to be able to play it for you, but I will put the link in the show notes so people can go and check it out for themselves. Basically, he is asking about a apparent contradiction between something that I said in episode 265 of the podcast and something that I said in a recent GRTV backgrounder, uh, Media Lies and Syrians Die, talking about the idea of objectivity. And, of course, for people who did see uh, episode 265, I was talking about the myth of journalistic objectivity and the idea that there is no way to achieve a journalistic objectivity. The idea that uh, Walter Cronkite is going to tell you the way that's the way the world was or that type of ridiculous, outdated concept that uh, that somehow there is some reporter that can float mystically above us all in the clouds and, and have no biases, which influences the way in which they report the news or even what news they report. As I, I hope, made the argument for in that episode, there is no such thing as journalistic objectivity and that every journalistic editorial um, uh, decision is a decision that is steeped in biases and subjectivity, and there's no way around that. Even the question of what subjects to cover and what subjects not to cover is an, uh, a question that is steeped in, in subjective biases and preferences and uh, decisions. So... Having said that, um, then I, I think that uh, part of the problem with, with DJ Mongo's question is that he incorrectly summarizes that as saying that I am uh, uh, putting forward the idea there is no such thing as objective external reality, that there is no such thing as, as uh, truth, which uh, is certainly not my intention. Uh, that That is absolutely not what I believe. I do believe there is an objectively uh, objective external world, which is understandable to a certain extent. I don't think that 100% certainty is ever possible because of the, just the flaws in, the, in our perceptions and sensations and our, our ways of experiencing the world, but I think we can arrive at some sort of understanding of the objective truth of the world, and uh, we, can be, uh, we can do that in a better or or worse way, depending on what methods we use to get there. So that um, is, I think, not what I was arguing. But on the finer point of whether there's a contradiction between me arguing in episode 265 that journalistic objectivity is a myth, and then me seeming to disparage Ivy Lee's remarks in the uh, GRTV backgrounder, where I quoted him as saying that what is a fact, basically any fact is my attempt to put forward my my views in uh, towards you. Um, I, I suppose on the, on the limited reading of that Ivy Lee quote, I, I suppose I do agree with him. Any any attempt to portray the objective truth of, of what's happening in the world in a journalistic format is going to be trying to put forward a viewpoint uh, or another. And uh, and on that limited reading, I suppose I am in accord with Ivy Lee's uh, philosophical point there. But of course, I'm absolutely opposed to the agenda that he and his cohorts represented. And I think Ivy Lee, uh, for people who don't know, he was the, basically the person who invented the PR industry for the Rockefellers on the back of the Ludlow Massacre. And um, and I think that he, him and his philosophical pro- progeny have been involved in an attempt to convince the public of this idea of journalistic objectivity at the same time as they're trying to subtly manipulate them by putting all of their biases in the background. That is something that I fundamentally object to. If Ivy Lee and his cohorts were completely open about it, hey, look, we work for the Rockefellers and we're trying to put forward the Rockefeller view of the world, I wouldn't even have a particular problem with that type of reporting because at least it would be all out on the table and people could take it for what it's worth, which is absolutely nothing. It's when they try to hide that that I get very suspicious and why I think it's important for uh, reporters to be upfront with what it is that they they believe and what they, they uh, are advocating. And that's why I make no bones about the fact that I am absolutely for human liberty and I'm against the military-industrial complex and these imaginary governments that claim to have authority over human minds, etc., etc. All of all of my bones are out there on the table for people to take a look at and uh, to do with as they please. 
so what is really the what is the way uh, 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 above this? How can we how can we ever do anything if everything is just going to be contained in these subjective journalistic reports that um, are necessarily biased, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Well, that was what I was gesturing towards in my presentation in France, um, talking about open source journalism, which I think uh, represents the, at least one way of of us uh, transcending the biases of any one given source. Obviously, if uh, if the journalism that you're looking at is open source, then you can go and explore the source uh, documentation for yourself, and you can look at the the direct, the, the, the source documents, like if I talk about Anthony Sudden, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, you can go read that for yourself and come to your own conclusions about his uh, the documents that he was looking at and the connections that he drew, etc. So, uh, again, you can source it from, from all of the various different sources that go into the creation of a report, and I think that's exceptionally important, and that's one way that we can transcend the biases of any one particular source. So, a lot to say there. I it's, it's an important question. I'm glad you asked it, um, but I think that there was some confusion there about my opinions, and I certainly do believe there is an objective, true, a, a, a objectively existing world out there, and uh, I think we can come to some understanding of that. It's just putting that in a journalistic form is necessarily going to bring with it all sorts of problems. Okay, moving along. Next question. We have an email in from Stan who writes... In Western civilization, what are the cancer rates like now compared to about 100 years ago? Is there a graph showing a rise? Okay, good question. Thank you for that, Stan. Um, well, on that note, we can turn to a lot of different sources. Um, one that offers um, us some different sources is the National Cancer Institute, which has a statistics page where they link to a lot of different sources for different uh, data from different uh, different uh, statistical sources of putting all of this information together. The SEER Cancer Statistics Review, the United States Cancer Statistics, the Cancer Incidents and Mortality Patterns, blah, 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 sorted in all sorts of different ways ways available from different websites, etc. Um, there's also the uh, the National Cancer Institute's uh, Cancer Trends Progress Report, which shows the, uh, the graph of the incidence of cancer um, in various populations, sorted by, for example, male and female, and then both sexes combined. Um, th this data runs, um, the, the data that I'm looking at at any rate, the graph runs from 1975 to 2008 and shows, although there has been some upticks and downticks in the, in the incidence uh, of cancer, there is a general trend line upwards. It is sloping upwards um, from the 1970s to today. So there is an increase in uh, cancer rates, both among males and females, and with an interesting spike in the early 1990s, especially for males. Um, very interesting indeed. And uh, for some more up-to-date information, we can turn to uh, a, a WebMD article that I cited briefly, I believe, in the New World Next Week episode not too long ago, um, just from May of 2012, uh, cancer, global cancer rates set to soar by 2030. And there have been more reports in recent months talking about a, uh, again, sharp uptake in breast cancer among women, which is really driving uh, increased cancer incidence overall. So a lot of different data points to look at. And again, don't trust any one source on this. I think you should look into a lot of different sources and see where they agree and disagree, etc. But I think the overall trend that all of them seem to agree on, certainly in the United States context, and I think in uh, in the Western world context uh, more generally, is that there is a general up, up, up trend and a sloping uptrend in the incidence of cancer. Um, and interestingly, uh, there I think one of the articles that helps put this into perspective is an article from uh, Dr. Mercola at Mercola.com from January uh, of last year. U.S. cancer death rates on the decline but cancer incidence is still rising, and here's why. So he goes to talk about how fewer people are dying of cancer, but more people are getting cancer. So um, I think that goes right to the heart of what we were talking about in our Rockefeller Medicine edition of this podcast, talking about the, uh, the basically the Rockefellerization of medicine and the creation of allopathic medicine as a way of extracting more of the wealth from the, the dumb masses who will go and pay for this uh, cancer, um, uh, once you have cancer, trying to treat the cancer rather than looking at the root causes of it, etc., which, again, is just part of keeping you in a system, keeping you sick, keeping you dependent, and keeping you paying more and more of the money to Big Pharma and the Rockefellers and all of those usual suspects. So that's an interesting part of the overall trend. More people getting cancer, fewer people dying of it, just meaning they're living with it and uh, paying more for the, uh, the the radiation treatments and other treatments that are, again, part of contributing, contributing to their, their long and untimely demises. 
Um, an interesting part of that article, though, specifically is top 12 tips to prevent cancer at the end, which I think is just general good health um, ideas in general, talking about getting regular good sleep and vitamin D levels, omega-3, omega-6 fats, etc. Um, all of that, again, in that article. So I'll suggest that you go and take a look at that. So again, thank you for the question, Stan. And let's move on to the next question along similar health-related lines, this time from uh, Twitter and at, at Chipper10, at Chirper10, at Chipper10, who writes, does fluorine, fluoride, uh, affect teeth, one, because of the contact with teeth when drinking brushing, or two, internally from the bloodstream, or both? Okay, excellent. Very good question. I'm glad you asked this. Let's go to the Fluoride Action Network, fluoridealert.org, that has a, a page specifically devoted to this topic. It's called Topical versus Systemic Effects of fluoridation. And it goes on to talk about how in the 1940s, back when they were starting to push this water fluoridation idea, which again was pushed by, for example, the aluminum, uh, 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 sorry, the, uh, the aluminum industry, the fertilizer industry, the, even the nuclear, uh, um, nuclear weapon production process, uh, the secondary products of all of this include fluoride and fluorines of various sorts. So they were arguing for fluoridation of the water. And um, one of the ways they did this was a hypothesis that ingestion of fluoride directly during the creation, the development of uh, teeth in children would be beneficial because the fluoride would then become part of the, uh, the tooth. It would be incorporated into the tooth in the eruption and would help to protect the enamel in future, in future years so that it would, it would last a lifetime of benefit from the ingestion of fluoride when a child is developing their teeth. That was the hypothesis in the 40s. It was promoted again in the 1950s by public health service chiefs, etc. But as this fluoridealert.org article shows, in July of 2000, even the Journal of the American Dental Association itself admitted that this was a flawed hypothesis, that, quote, fluoride incorporated during tooth development is insufficient to play a significant role in caries protection. That was also backed up by the Center for Disease Control, which stated in 1999, quote, fluoride prevents dental caries predominantly after eruption of the tooth into the mouth, and its actions primarily are topical for both adults and children. So translation into regular everyday speech, uh, drinking fluoride is about as effective for preventing dental cavities as drinking sunscreen would be to preventing uh, sunburns. It has it does not affect um uh, it, it is not an effective way of doing that it's not healthy um as we know from all of the studies that show all of the adverse effects to fluoride and even the the phony idea that they cooked up the hypothesis they cooked up in the 40s as to why they should fluoridate the water they don't even go along with that anymore neither the american dental association nor the center for disease control says that um that drinking fluoride ingesting fluoride is beneficial to preventing cavities so there you go. That's the official answer. A again, even from the official sources, of course, both the ADA and the CDC still recommend fluoridation. In fact, the CDC, I believe, called fluoridation one of the most beneficial public health programs of all time. But that's just because, well, again, it's just complete, utter propaganda. But the, the truth there is at fluoridealert.org. So I'll point people to that page. Let's move along to Phil, who writes... Thank you for introducing me to John Taylor Gatto via your links. During a two-day marathon, which ended today, I managed to read The Underground History of American Education. I can now see how workplace is meant to sim simulate the school environment for a scientifically managed, dumbed-down, docile workforce. At both school and work, fear and distrust is invoked by an authoritarian setup of minimum accountability while micromanaging others with carrots, sticks, scorecards, salary ratings, etc. Self-esteem is further eroded by constant changes and chaos in the workplace, ongoing distractions, info overload, and purposeless busyness resulting in a wastage of time, talent, and resources. Then, while individual resourcefulness is actively discouraged, employee satisfaction surveys are sent out. Is this some kind of experiment measuring employee dissatisfaction, or is this just another way to play with our heads? Thank you for that, Phil, and I think the answer... 
is yes to both questions. I think it's a little bit of a combination. Maybe in the same way that voting um, is not just a way of getting people to participate in the process and make them feel that they've had a say in in what happens, which is actually an exceptionally important part of what voting is all about. But also, I think it is a way of for the powers that shouldn't be to gauge where the electorate is and what uh, what they might be experiencing. So they get to see the real results before the uh, the doctored results come out the other side of the black box voting machine, uh, telling us which candidate has been selected, pre-selected to become the president or governor or mayor or what have you. Um, So I think it does have that function. It is uh, these employee satisfaction surveys are a way to get one employee buy-in to the system so that the employees feel like they've had some say over it. And I have the feeling I have seen a study that said something to that effect that employees who were asked their opinion about whether they should have fluorescent lights or, or tungsten lights or, or whatever it was um, a, 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 were, were more likely to feel happier about whatever happened afterwards, um, regardless of whether their suggestions were taken into account or not, than employees who were not asked. So basically just asking someone their opinion gets them to buy into it, gets them to to pretend that they've had some sort of say over it gets them to to feel happier and improves productivity supposedly so that's one part of it and again i think it is playing with uh playing with people's heads so yes a very interesting little part of that employee satisfaction surveys it makes you wonder why there aren't more attempts to solicit satisfaction surveys or or some sort of buy-in for students in the school system maybe they just don't want to even get students thinking along the lines of even beginning to question the authority that's been placed over them um because why by the time they're workers in the system they've already had their backs broken by the 18 years of uh, indoctrination they've had up to that point so i guess it's all part of that system all right let's move on to the next question from mookie who writes what's the best and freest way of uploading data so that others can download easily yeah very important question and um i guess i i don't know what to advocate because again uh Anything that you upload, I mean, first of all, we should understand that uh, that privacy is is something of a pipe pipe dream when you're uploading data, whatever type of encryption you use. So again, let's not get into that that whole section of it. But just if you want to share some sort of information widely and broadly and quickly and easily and freely, how do you do it? Um, well, obviously, BitTorrents are still very popular. I don't actually torrent myself, but I know a lot of people out there do. And in fact, I've had people um, email me to say that they want to torrent the Corbett Report podcast and seed it, and uh, by all means, please, 100%. This information is provided completely out there, freely available to the public. I uh, use the uh, Creative Commons 2.5 non-attribution, uh, non-commercial license, so you are free to go and take it and and use it, repurpose it, republish it, mirror it, put it out in BitTorrents, get it up out to the four winds however you want, and I hope that you do so so that it gets uh, out there to as many people as humanly possible. And BitTorrents might be one way of doing that, um, it, again, if you just want something free and, and fast and, and uh, relatively easy. Uh, way of sharing information uh, wider. All right, let's move on. Uh, Doug writes, I have written a book of social commentary poetry and would like to have a role in the social commentary like yourself. How would you recommend to get my message out? Book, blog, site? Do you know of any self-publishing site that can help? Uh, very important question. I'm sure a lot of people have questions along these lines, people who are interested in getting their their own ideas out there and who are willing to take up my call for more people to get actively involved in this. So I think publishing a book, sure. Truth Poetry, awesome. Add, it, add your voice to the mix. That's great. Um, I don't have a specific recommendation for sites. There are a lot of sites out there by which you can self-publish these days. Um, you can go by th- through the belly of the beast to through Amazon and places like that, Create Space or whatever they have. There are other, I'm sure, smaller, more independent places. But I think self-publishing is the way to go in this day and age. I can't imagine why or how anyone would want to work within the publishing industry and go through that traditional process in this age where you can reach out and directly interact with an audience without any need for a mediator. Uh, but of course... Having said that, you're not going to have an audience at all if no one knows you, so you would have to make efforts and inroads somehow. Uh, I think uh, having a blog associated with your poetry 
book, website, however you want to set that up, I think that couldn't hurt. Uh, having a podcast, why not? Building up an audience who's interested in what you're interested in and then will support your work, I think that's a good way to go about it. And when and if I ever get my book finished, I, I hope that people who are interested in The Corbett Report will support it. And I think that there's already an audience for that type of book because I built up the website. Of course, that wasn't why I built up the website, but it's nice to have that and to have the ability to get my message out and heard. But again, it's an awful lot of work to main, keep and, and to grow and keep and maintain an audience. So obviously, it's uh, it's something that's transformative and will probably transform your life along the way. Um, again, however you choose to do that, I, I, I think it's going to take a lot of effort, but I, I hats off to you and anyone else who gets in that ring, and I, I salute everyone who's trying to get the word out through whatever method, whatever gift, whatever talent you have. Use it for the propagation of truth and uh, and uh, and happiness and and something nice in this world, creating something beautiful rather than trying to tear it apart. All right, uh, let's move on to Rob, who writes... I would be curious what your thoughts are on this study. Do you think it's legit? And he links to a study that has recently come out. Um, it's by Robert J. Brule. It's published in Springer Science uh, Business Media, and it's called Institutionalizing Delay Foundation Funding and the Creation of U.S. Climate Change Counter-Movement Organizations. Basically, this is some big news study talking about the funding of these climate change deniers and where it all comes from, or that's how this study is being portrayed in the media. Simplification anyway, and oh wow, it's now been conclusively found it's not just the Koch brothers and Exxon, it's it's all these people who are funding the climate change denial movement, because there's no one who doesn't believe the AGW uh, hype and, uh, and catastrophe who hasn't been secretly getting oil money of one sort or another, according to... Uh, thoroughly ridiculous websites uh, that I will... Actually, I will stop naming it because I've named it a number of times. Well, one that wrote one about me specifically, actually, talking about how my $5 a month climategate.tv website was being secretly funded by the oil industry, apparently. Um, very, very funny. Um, but but yes, here's, here's another... And this is a peer-reviewed scientific paper on this, so it must be serious. Um, I, I, lots of different ways to counter what's being said there, but I hope people will go beyond the headlines, go beyond the interviews that you might be seeing even in certain alternative media outlets about this study, look at the actual paper itself and examine what it actually says. Uh, a great article that does that and breaks down what is what it's saying is uh, up on whatsupwiththat.com, which had a report being bullish on Robert Brule's dark money smear of skeptics. And it's an excellent article, and it goes into a lot of reasons that he comes to the ultimate conclusion that it, ultimately Brule's uh, uh, definition of denier is anyone that he dislikes. And he goes into that specifically talking about this climate change counter movement that he's trying to define, and he defines it as... Uh, this movement is to, uh, an efficacious approach to defining this movement is to view it as a cultural contestation between a social movement advocating restrictions on carbon emissions and a counter movement opposed to such action. So basically anyone who's opposed to any restrictions on carbon is one of these deniers and, and uh, is obviously getting funding from, you know, these nefarious sources. But funnily enough, people who are opposed to things like cap-and-trade, regulations on carbon, who are also supportive of the catastrophic AGW agenda, like James Hansen, one of the people who helped kick off this whole hysteria in the 1980s with his preposterously and completely wrong projections of temperature increase that he had projected... Um, uh, he gets he gets off the hook, even though he's against car, uh, cap and trade because he thinks it's going to be completely ineffective, uh, and it's going to be a boondoggle um, where Wall Street's going to fleece the public out of billions of dollars. And hey, I actually agree with him on those points. But he's not a denier in in Brule's uh, categorization because well, because he's on his side. But other organizations, even ones that do support um, different types of mitigation. Uh, like the Global Climate Coalition, somehow does find it grouped in with that uh, counter-climate uh, change movement that he's trying to define. So again, it's a completely made-up, arbitrary definition. He's just trying to, uh, to have his cake and eat it, too. Um, and so we, we have to deconstruct that. And probably the best way to do that is to point once again to something like uh, Joe Nova at joannova.com.au, who had a post back a few years ago now, back in 2009, talking about the climate industry, um, $79 billion so 
far trillions to come. Talking about even at that point, um, five years ago now, so it's half a decade out of date and thus uh, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars out of date. But but talking about how $79 billion at the very least could be found uh, to directly source from the U.S. government to pay um, for various climate change, science and technology research, foreign aid, tax breaks, etc., um, since 1989 to 2009. So in that 20-year period, $79 billion. And then the trillions of dollars, literally trillions, that have been proposed in carbon uh, markets around the world uh, yet to come. So is there money to be made in the climate uh, hysteria? Oh, yes. But some, for some reason, people never talk about that side of the equation. It's only, where are these climate deniers getting their money from? Well, again, I have yet to receive my check from Exxon, so I'll, I'll wait for that in the mailbox. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll go check uh, after I'm done recording this, see if it's arrived yet. Um, again, just more preposterousness from the usual um, people. And again, more of the, the, the type of ludicrousness that will make for great headlines. Oh, new academic paper finds climate denier f- funds or whatever. And uh, once you start to actually look into it, it turns out to be completely fraudulent. On the climate change note, Mandy also writes, Is there a longer report on climate myths debunked? It seems you've just highlighted how bad statistics and cherry-picking the facts can turn black into white. It's not your usual standard, so I fear I've missed something. No offense meant. All right, thank you, Mandy. No offense taken, I guess, um, if you say so. Um, But I think that is, uh, uh, well, if not offensive, it's just, uh, 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 again, it just goes to show that there's no way, no way you can win when producing media of any sort, because either you produce the short type of punchy reports that have uh, the the kind of broad appeal that will get people to watch and you get lots of people to watch and then they critique it because it's not a long report. So you make long reports that are very detailed and have lots of links, but that's too long and boring. No one will watch it. So you do a mixture of both the short and the long reports and someone who only sees the short report will critique you for not doing the long reports, which you actually are doing. (laughs) So again, you cannot win um, with uh, production of media, but oh well, what's, uh, what's, what's the difference? Um, you just got to continue to try. So anyway, yes, talking about my um, 10 climate myths debunked in 60 seconds, which again lives up to its name. It was 60 seconds uh, debunking 10 climate myths. Obviously, that's not uh, ample time to give any sort of justice to any sort of debunking, which is why there was a uh, transcript of that debunking that was linked up in uh, the show notes for that. Again, always in the YouTube video. If you're watching the YouTube video, the show notes are linked right underneath the video. Just click on that. It'll take you to my site. You can go and read the transcript. And, and click on all the links. And uh, if you did so, you would have found all of the links to more detailed explanations of the various points I was making in that video. But even above and beyond that, not only have I done a longer report on debunking climate myths, I have done dozens of them. Um, podcasts, radio shows, interviews, you name it. I've done dozens and dozens of hours on this. So I think time is uh, it's, uh, it's high time that once again, we go to the desktop and take a look at how to use the search function on my website. All right, so for those of you who are watching the video of this podcast, you can see that we're on the homepage of CorbettReport.com and up in the right-hand corner, we have a handy little search box. So if you want to search for anything, for example, climate, to find out what else I've done on climate in the past, just type it into the search box right there, click enter, and away you go. You can find out all of my various articles and podcasts and interviews that I've done over the years and see many, many, many many, many, many more reports than that one little report that uh, that person was writing about. So let's uh, let's keep this in mind. This handy-dandy search box is your friend. You can use it to search for all sorts of different subjects or previous interview guests or that type of thing if you are curious as to what I've covered in the past. Okay, and just sticking on this climate change theme for another couple of questions, we have one in from Kimberly who writes, Are you no longer running a ClimateGate website? Tried finding it to link to, but it seems to be gone. Um, Thank you, Kimberly. I've mentioned this a few times now. Let's put it on the record once again. I used to have a website, climategate.tv, which was specifically about the uh, catastrophic anthropogenic global warming hysteria and specifically the debunking thereof that was being updated on a regular basis. Um, but that, that website went by the wayside. I didn't have the time or energy or ability to keep that up on a daily basis. So 
I uh, let that domain name expire. All of the original reports that I wrote or the video reports that I did for climategate.tv have been preserved on my YouTube channel on CorbettReport.com. Nothing is missing. All the rest were just articles that I had linked to of from various different websites. So no information was lost. It's just that that website doesn't exist anymore. I would love to be able to maintain something like that, um, but it's enough work to even just do FukushimaUpdate.com, which again, I hope people are uh, checking on a regular basis. It's being updated on a daily basis at this point um, with several news stories a day. So I hope people are keeping uh, track of that. But again, I don't, I w- really, really wish that I was able to do a news aggregator website generally. And in fact, that was from the very, very beginning of the Corporate Report, something that I had originally intended to do, to do the Corporate Report podcast and then to have a different website for a news aggregator. And I just have never been able to because I, uh, it, the podcast and this work takes all of my time. So, so who knows, maybe at some point in the future, when and if I can afford assistance, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know the deal. All right, let's move on to Subi, who writes, I find your analysis of the IPCC interesting. Currently, I'm in a fourth-year post-sec science course where we are discussing climate change in depth. My instructor graduated from East Anglia, and therefore it would appear that I would be getting pretty good information. If you had the opportunity to ask questions in a direct manner, what issues would you bring up, especially in a class where students discuss the Inconvenient Truth movie as well as the IPCC? Uh, Thank you for your time. Thank you for your question, Subi. Um, very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Oh, a graduate of East Anglia, the Climate Gate Central. Very interesting. And um, well, on that note specifically, I would really suggest that you go and look up uh, the articles that Tim Ball has written about uh, the University of East Anglia and the Climate uh, Research Center that they have and how it first developed um, under a, a climate scientist that Tim Ball has much respect for and then was taken over by Tom Wigand and his progeny, his philosophical progeny, um, and how that that really changed the note and tenor of what they were doing and what, uh, what that institution was all about. So there's a lot to go into, and I'd be fascinated to hear what someone from the inside of East Anglia had to say about the uh, the climate gate uh, leak and, you know, what was behind that and blah, blah, blah. I'm sure it would be a lot of propaganda, but still be interesting to hear. But anyway, um, with regards to the IPCC specifically, I will again direct people to, uh, well, actually I have a copy here, the uh, the 2009 video archive DVD where I have that, that interview with uh, Dr. Tim Ball talking specifically about the IPCC. It's also available for free on YouTube in our uh, recent podcast episode on the IPCC, the IPCC Exposed, I believe. Um, in which we talked about this and we played that interview with Dr. Tim Ball talking about um, the IPCC and specifically how A, the frame of reference determines what uh, any sort of institution is going to find. So if the frame of reference is they're looking for the human causes of global warming, then guess what? They're going to find human causes of global warming, not solar variability and the like. Um, And secondly, also the summary for policymakers. Why is it that the summary for policymakers, which is pretending to summarize the scientific report is released before the scientific report that it claims to be summarizing. And why is it the scientific report has to be altered to be in line with the summary for policymakers, which is decided on in committee meetings by diplomats? Why is that if this is such an august uh, scientific institution? That would be something that I'd like to get to the bottom of from someone who is an IPCC believer. Uh, just a couple of the issues raised there in that previous episode, so I'll direct people to that. And once again, the link will be in the show notes. Okay, uh, we are running out of time, so let's just get to the last couple of questions, squeeze a couple more in. Um, one from YouTube user IZANDB, I-Z-A-H-N-D-B, who writes, question for Corbett, since you live in Japan, do you ever watch anime? And the answer is no, I do not. Uh, next is Ryan, who uh, writes in with, as I say, we always want to highlight someone who has a positive story of, so, of the way that they've implemented some changes in their lives for the better. This is Ryan's story that he'd like to share. So he says, instead of a question, I would like to share with you and your audience some of the positive experiences I've had developing out of the system and how the Corbett Report has aided me in this journey. As a former corporate techie, I, wa- I began watching your program per a friend's recommendation. After contemplating the grand scale of corruption uncovered through your podcast, I decided enough was enough. I ditched my job in Florida, dropped out of the university, sold all my belongings, and moved to a remote island off the coast of Washington. Due to the nature of the community, I quickly learned how to live off the grid, engaging in activities like hunting, foraging, and growing my own food medicine. In less than a year, my entire life has been transformed. 
During my quest for deeper knowledge and positive global change, I became attached to natural medicine and healing. In a country ravished by disease, obesity, and medical misinformation, my partner and I began reaching out to friends, family, and the community who were most affected. In the past few months, we have successfully cured, as verified by a medical professional, friends of diseases like cancer, COPD, and others using fresh herbs growing in our garden, grown in our garden. For less than a dollar, these individuals have been able to drop thousands of dollars worth of pharmaceuticals and up their quality of life. I didn't learn any of these practical life skills from the educational system, and as highlighted in your podcast, there has been no greater time in history to educate ourselves than now with the advent of the internet. So please, listeners of the Corbett, get out there, pursue your passions, and use this tool for good. I know I'll be starting my own blog and creating videos exploring these topics come spring. Thank you, James, for inspiring me to conduct my own research against all odds, and without your advice, I would surely be stuck under the scalpel of Rockefeller Medicine. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for that uh, that interesting testimonial, and I'm sure we will all be looking forward to your blog when it gets started in the spring, so forward it on, and I'll let people know about it. So um, good to know that you're at least on the grid enough to be able to send that message to us, and that you are still interacting and trying to bring this message to other people. Again, I couldn't echo those sentiments more heartily than uh, Ryan put them. I think people should be using this technology to uh, educate yourself and to get off the, the, the system in whatever way you can, in whatever way you're able to um, to be as self-sufficient as possible because again if we're dependent on the system then we are going to be victims of that system because it is not meant to benefit you or I and uh, and finally on the last note John Brady writes in uh, James I have a question I've become a subscriber of the Boiling Frog site however I am hoping to support you is this the best way to do it Uh, Well, John, thank you very much for supporting Boiling Frogs. I I contribute to Boiling Frogs. I volunteer to work for them. I do all of my work completely for free for them. That's why the the Boiling Frogs Post eye-opener is now available freely online on YouTube um, because I'm donating it for free. So I don't get a single penny from Boiling Frogs. So I do appreciate that people subscribe to them. I hope that people do subscribe to help support Sabelle and the work of all the people at Boiling Frogs. But I don't see a single penny of that. If people want to support me and my work specifically, you do so from Corporate You can donate, you can subscribe to the newsletter, you can get DVDs. That's how I basically earn my living, how I put roof over my head and food on my table and help to feed my child. So um, I really do rely on your guys' support out there. I really do hope you will continue to support me as we move forward into 2014. Lots of questions yet to be answered and not enough time to do so, but we're going to have to leave it there for today. Once again, I do appreciate all of the information, feedback, questions, comments, complaints, criticisms, and helpful suggestions that I get in through the contact form and through all the various ways that you can reach me. I'm looking forward to doing this again. And in the meantime, thank you all for listening. Take care.